0: Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. I do this podcast and From John to Justin, and it's a lot of work of research, writing, and much more. Plus, I make videos about Canadian history, and I do all of this full-time. It's my job. So, every dollar you give helps keep it all going, and I truly appreciate it, and I'll make sure I thank you on the air and throughout social media. If you like, you can email me at craig craigatcanadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. I'm on Instagram at bairdo 37 and I'm on TikTok at also bairdo37. Centuries ago, the location of future Brandon was the home of the Sioux, Bungay, Yellowquill, and Birtail Indigenous tribes. The Indigenous would follow the bison through the region, harvesting the animals for many resources that they would use in their day-to-day lives, including for food and clothing. Located 5 kilometers west of Brandon, there is an ancient Indigenous burial mount, bison kill site and campsite located along the Assiniboine River Valley. It was here about 1,000 years ago the indigenous would trap and kill large numbers of bison using the steep terrain to harvest great numbers of the beasts. In the shelter of the valley wall, the meat was processed and other resources such as fish, birds and berries were collected. There's also evidence of a burial site at the location and habitation within the forested slopes of the valley wall. In 1948, the site was made a provincial heritage resource. In the 18th century, fur traders were coming into the region, upsetting the dynamic of the indigenous as well as their trading networks. The first fur traders were French-Canadian voyageurs who passed through on their way to the Hudson's Bay post, Fort Elise. The area of Brandon was first settled by John and Dougal McVigour, and their families and their choice of location would prove to be beneficial. In the 1870s, it was believed that the Transcontinental Railway would take a more northwesterly direction, going up towards Fort Edmonton and through the Yellowhead Pass. In 1881, that plan was changed and a southerly route was taken instead. I actually talk about this on my limited series podcast, Coast to Coast. As a result, the railroad would be built through the area, towards the homesteads of the McViggers, on the opposite side of the river, where Brandon sits today. With the expectation that the railroad would be coming through, settlers and land prospectors began to come to the area to capitalize. On one side of the river was Grand River, while future Brandon sat on the other side. When Thomas Rosser, the chief engineer of the Canadian Pacific Railway, arrived in the area, he had to choose which side of the river would get the railroad, Grand River or future Brandon. Rosser would offer McVigour $25,000 for the railway to go through Grand Valley, which McVigour countered with $50,000, and Rosser was said to have stated, I'll be damned if a town of any kind is ever built here. He then went across the river and chose the location for Brandon. As for the name, that comes from the hills located south of the city. Those hills were in turn named for a Hudson Bay post named Brandon House, which gets its name from a hill on an island in James Bay, where Captain Thomas James anchored his ship way back in 1631. Grand Valley hoped to still be an important community even though it didn't have the railway, but to add insult to injury, a flood hit the community soon after and settlers decided to move directly to the new location of Brandon. One fascinating fact about Brandon is that it grew so quickly that the community was never incorporated as a village or a town, but was immediately incorporated as a city. One year after Brandon became a city in 1883, the Brandon Courthouse and Jail would be built. The building would serve as the courthouse for the entire area initially before it was remodelled in 1910 to serve only as a jail and until 1979 it served as a detention centre. Today it is a multi-use building and its former second floor courtroom now functions as a meeting place. The most interesting aspect of this building is that it is the oldest remaining courthouse not only in Manitoba but across the Canadian prairies. It was a tough year for Brandon in 1894 It was in that year that two major fires caused massive amounts of damage. On March 1st, 1894, at 11pm, a fire broke out in the Syndicate block, destroying several businesses in the process and doing $30,000 in damages, or over $1 million today. If that wasn't bad enough, on August 17th, also at 11pm, the flour mill went up in flames due to a spark from the smokestack falling into the dust of the warehouse and igniting. Firefighters did everything they could to save the building but it burned to the ground, resulting in $75,000 in damages, or over $2 million today, and only half of that was covered by insurance. In 1900, a fence was built in Brandon. Why am I talking about a fence? Well, that fence stands to this day 121 years later. Called the Stone Fence, it was built with high, thick walls made of limestone blocks of varying shades. Construction started in 1900 and would continue for the next four years as part of an estate structure. The fence once encircled the entire block, but now borders seven houses built on the property in 1939. Charles Whitehead, the founder of the Brandon Sun, was the person who had the fence built initially to cover his 6,000 square meter estate, and now the fence is a landmark and a reminder of days long since gone. The fence runs a half a kilometre in length and is about 1.6 metres high and 40 centimetres thick. Due to its historic nature for the community, it was made a Municipal Heritage Site in 2003. In 1911, construction began on the new Canadian Pacific Railway Station in Brandon. It would be finished the following year and was built two storeys tall out of brick and stone from the area. The first class station showed the importance of the city to the railroad and it would soon become a focal point of the community. The building stands to this day and can be visited. Currently, it is one of the three largest and most impressive CPR stations still standing in Manitoba. In 2011, it was made a provincial historic site. One year after the construction of the CPR station finished, a new building would be built in the community. The two-story brick normal school was one of four teacher training institutes built in Manitoba between 1903 and 1913. Today, it remains the only one that still stands in the province outside of Winnipeg. It was built in order to prepare teachers for working in rural teaching environments in the one-room schools that dotted the landscape. One of its longtime principals was also Benjamin Hales, who had found the B.J. Hales Museum of Natural History, now part of the Brandon University. The normal school would train teachers for 30 years before it became the Manitoba Agriculture and Homemaking School. From 1959 to today, it has been the Agriculture Extension Center of Brandon University and in 1985 was preserved as a provincial heritage resource. I'd like to take a break away from the episode for a second to talk about Explornet. I spent most of my life living in rural areas in Canada and I remember the days of dial-up internet and spotty high-speed service. For the past three years, I have been a customer of Explornet, and I can honestly say that it is the best rural internet I have ever had. My job as a podcaster means I spend a lot of time researching online, interviewing people over Zoom, and uploading content. Through it all, Explornet has provided me with excellent service. When I'm not working, I enjoy streaming content on several streaming platforms, and even doing some online gaming with a friend in Ontario. Explornet allows me to do all of that with ease. Right now, they offer up to 50 megabits per second on their new LTE network with unlimited data. Their service has only become faster and better since I first signed on. Today and beyond, ExploreNet is investing in building and upgrading the network at a rapid pace. ExploreNet is rural, and that is their route, and that is their focus. For more information about rural internet options in your area, go to ExploreNet.com or call one eight six six two eight five two two five three. A lot of the buildings built at this time in the growing community of Brandon still stand to this day, including the Dominion Exhibition Display Building, built in 1913. Today, it is the only surviving building built for the Dominion Exhibition, which was held every year from 1879 to 1914. Once built in the community, it became a focal point and an important centre for the city of Brandon. This building was inspired by the World Columbian Exposition in Chicago in 1893 and it was built by architects Schilling Law and Marshall. Due to its historic nature, it was made a National Historic Site of Canada in 1995. And while several historical buildings were built between 1911 and 1913 in Brandon, there was one man in the community who was obsessed with burning buildings down. Throughout the spring and summer of 1913, an arsonist was busy at work in the community burning down everything from small sheds to, at one point, lighting the A.E. McKenzie Warehouse on fire, as well as the Brandon Wire and Stamp Company. Luckily, the fire brigade was on hand quickly to put those fires out in both buildings before it caused too much damage. By the time the fires stopped in August, 23 had been lit over the course of only three months. Charles Dollimore was arrested in relation to the fires, having been seen acting strangely and talking about lighting fires. The newspaper would describe him of weak intellect, but he was eventually released. On May 15, 1914, a young man named Walter Edward Broda would be born in Brandon to a Ukrainian family. As a young boy in school, due to his many freckles, Broda would gain the nickname of Turkey Egg, which eventually became Turk, and from then on he was known as Turk Broda. A skilled goaltender, Broda would win the Memorial Cup in 1932-33, and was invited to the Detroit Red Wings training camp, but he didn't make the team. In 1935-36, the Toronto Maple Leafs acquired him, and he became one of the best goalies in the league. In 1941-42, he won his first Stanley Cup, helping the Leafs become the only NHL team to come back from three games down in the final to win the Cup. After serving in the Second World War for two and a half years, Broda would come back to lead the Maple Leafs to the Stanley Cup in 1946-47, 1947-48, 1948-49, and 1950-51, creating a hockey dynasty. He would retire the following year, and in 1967 Broda was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. During his career, along with his five Stanley Cups, Broda won the Vezina Trophy in 1941 and 1948, and had his number one jersey retired by the Maple Leafs. In 1998, he was ranked the 60th greatest player of all time, and in 2017 he was named one of the 100 greatest NHL players in history. Through his NHL career, all with the Maple Leafs, Broda had 302 wins, 224 losses, and 62 shutouts. When the First World War erupted, many men from Brandon would go overseas to fight in the trenches of Europe, but the war would come to Brandon as well through an internment camp that was set up at the Exhibition Building. The camp did not house German prisoners of war, though, the Canadians, who had been deemed enemy aliens by the Canadian government, despite living in Canada for many years and even decades, but had come from Germany or Austria originally. The Brandon City Council was in support of the interment of enemy aliens and would even write a letter to the federal government stating, quote, With respect to the registration of Austrians and Germans, there are a large number of these aliens. End quote. The City would then request that the City of Brandon become a registration centre and then the location of an internment camp. The City Council would pass a motion unanimously stating, quote, The citizens of Brandon desire to place on record their appreciation of the services of Sir J.A.M. Aikens relative to the arrangements for the internment of prisoners of war at Brandon. End quote. The Prisoner of War camp would open in September of 1914 and would continue to operate for nearly two years until July 1916. The internment camp was located between 10th and 11th streets in the arena buildings, and during the time it operated, about 900 men were imprisoned at one time in the camp, and they would work on area farms. Due to the extreme boredom many suffered in the camp, and the distance from their families, there were several escape attempts. On June 7, 1915, 15 men attempted to escape, and 19-year-old Andrew Grapko was shot by guards in the attempt. It has also been reported that many men died of injuries at the camp or committed suicide. Today, a plaque is at the City Hall honouring the men who spent nearly two years at the camp, whose only crime was their place of birth. On June 18, 1923, Brandon would endure one of its most significant storms when a near tornado hit the city at 3pm, uprooting trees, blowing fences across roads and taking the roofs off several buildings. Telephone lines were knocked down with 700 poles needing to be replaced, cutting the community off from the outside world in that regard. But the telegraph lines were still okay in transmitting. Several cars had their tops completely torn off and a few cars even rolled in the wind, but thankfully there were no serious injuries. On September 13, 1957, about 20 office staff were finishing their last coffee break at 4pm at the Manitoba Power Commission building, when suddenly a massive explosion blew out the bottom of the smokestack, showering the canteen below in bricks. Several people were thrown from their feet and burned by hot coffee. Calvin Jerry would be thrown through the air and a covered door would fall on his back, which ended up protecting him. Irv Powers would have a spine crushed by a heavy beam landing on him, and two men, Fred Morden and Tom Tays, were killed by falling bricks. Both men were fathers with young children. Mrs. Jim Miller, who owned a beauty shop across the street, was sitting in the back of the building when she felt everything rumble. She would say, quote, then there was a double explosion, end quote. The explosion had occurred when a pocket of gas built up at the base of the smokestack and ignited. The operator was unaware of how much oil vapor and fuel had gathered when the boiler was reignited, and about 100 feet of the 130 feet brick chimney would collapse as a result. Rescuers would work in the wreckage up to their hips to free the trapped men. Located in Brandon, you will find the Commonwealth Air Training Plan Museum, an aviation museum dedicated to the memory of the airmen from the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan who trained across Canada during the Second World War. In the museum, several Second World War aircraft are on display, along with various artifacts from that time. Among the items displayed are two Avro Ansons, two Bristol Bolingbrokes, and a Hawker Hurricane. The building the museum is located in was the Service Flying Training School, built in 1941 and used to train pilots for fighting overseas. The building is a registered historic place, and the museum would move into it in 1981. On June 6, 1967, Brandon would receive the first of its four royal visits when Princess Alexandra, the daughter of Prince George and Princess Marina, and the first cousin of Queen Elizabeth II, came to the community. She would unveil the Brandon Centennial Auditorium cornerstone and state, I hope I can return and have the honour of attending a concert. She was greeted at the Brandon Airport by 200 people, where she chatted with spectators. She would also attend an assembly of 7,000 schoolchildren before having dinner in the college dining room. The city of Brandon would present the princess with six silver Centennial teaspoons. Three years later, on July 12, 1970, Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip were greeted by thousands of people who packed along the roadsides and the grandstands to see the royal couple on their first visit to the community. Over 1,000 people came to the Brandon University campus to see the royal family during their 20-minute visit to the campus to lay a cornerstone for the John R. Brody Science Centre. The royal family then went to the exhibition park where 10,000 people had crammed in to see them and watched the centennial pageant be performed. They would also visit the Fairview Senior Home, where 100 senior citizens waited to see the Queen as she passed through on her way through the community. As the family was leaving, a man threw a rolled-up Welsh flag to Prince Charles, who enrolled it and spread it across the railing of the coach. The Queen would return alone to Brandon during a visit to Canada on October 5, 1984, when she came to Brandon University to unveil a plaque commemorating the opening of the Queen Elizabeth II Music Building. She would only remain in the community for just over an hour before venturing on to Winnipeg. Once again, several hundreds of people lined the streets to see the Queen when she arrived in the community. Princess Anne would return to Brandon, arriving in the community on July 16, 1982, where she watched a rodeo, wore a cowboy hat, and awarded trophies to winners. During her visit, she was greeted by country music and took a ride in a horse-drawn carriage. She had come to the community to help Brandon celebrate its 100th anniversary, and along with the rodeo, the princess visited a farm research station, a seed plant, and dined at a beef barbecue with 100 other guests. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at the community of Brandon, Manitoba. Next week, we're looking at the British Columbia community of Quinnell. If you like, you can email me at craig You can find me on Twitter. My handle is craigbaird, Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Vobs, Robert Page, Richard D., Colin Johnson, Katie Caldwell, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rowa, Luke S., JP Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.